Welcome and thanks for joining us today on the Abundance Podcast. We'll go ahead and get started in prayer. Well, good afternoon, Holy Spirit. Thank you for your presence. Thank you that you're with me where I'm at and you're with everyone else where they're at. I just thank you that you'll go beyond my words and that you'll minister to each one of us right where we're at. And I thank you, Lord, that you thought enough about us, that you recorded the lives of all these people so that we could learn from their mistakes and and learn from their successes so that we could be equipped for this life. So again, I just thank you, Jesus. And we bless this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to continue on in this series I've entitled David's Journey. And this is part two. And I've entitled it King Saul Added Again. And today we're going to pick back up kind of right where we left off. And we're going to start off in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Now up to this point, what we've seen so far in the life of King Saul are basically examples of how not to be a man after God's own heart. And ultimately, when we use the phrase, a man after God's own heart, we know, because we've got the Bible, that we're describing David, who actually will be king after King Saul. You know, he'll be the next one. Now, if you haven't had a chance to listen to part one in this series, I would suggest you go back and do that, mainly because it really laid the groundwork for why we're looking at the life of Saul, you know, when this series is called David's Journey. And that's because Saul is just such a good example of how not to be directed by God, really. And that'll help us later on as we get into the life of David to see how even when David made mistakes, he wasn't like Saul. He still was a man after God's own heart, and he wanted to honor God. So just as a short recap of some of the things that we discussed in part one, we talked about how in Saul's second year as king, and he was king for 40 years, that he did something he wasn't supposed to do and it was so blatantly disobedient that there's no disputing that, you know, he messed up. And we saw that Saul's attitude wasn't to take the responsibility for himself. Instead, he tried to blame just about anybody else he could could blame. And ultimately, after this, God ends up telling him that he would remove Saul from being king. That he would have established his kingdom over Israel forever, but that now God would have to find someone else who would be a man after his own heart. And again, I've already said it, but we know that 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 man is David. We saw also in part one that Saul was so caught up in pride that there was a time where he would have killed his own son had the people not stepped in and stopped it. So King Saul was a man that started off good, but over time began to be more concerned about what he wanted than what God wanted. And so why are we looking at the life of Saul and, and then soon to be David? And it goes back to the verse that we talked about last time in part one. It's, it's Romans 15, 4. It says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So we're to learn from these people's you know, mistakes and their successes, and we're to take that stuff and we're to apply it into our own lives. Now, after listening to part one of the series, you may have thought, you know, that, that Saul really couldn't outdo himself anymore, that that had to have been as, as bad as it was going to get for him. And and actually, I was talking to my mom, who had listened to that first part, and we were talking about, you know, Saul and, and just about that episode. 
And as I was talking with her, you know, because I've been reading in the book of First Samuel and all that stuff and and wasn't really sure in my head when I was talking with her where exactly I left off on the podcast and with the story that we'll be looking at today, in my mind, I actually thought that the stories were combined. I, I you know, just didn't know exactly where I left off and so I kind of thought I went over them both. So I thought they were just in a clump. But as I started preparing for this episode, I realized that they were just two totally different stories and I hadn't talked about what we're going to be talking about today. And and it's crazy. Just Saul just is at it again. He just keeps on making mistake after mistake and it's almost like he's trying to mess up. So again, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 15. And this chapter is so jam-packed that it's really hard to do it justice by just simply trying to explain in my own words, you know, what all is in this chapter. As I was preparing for this message, I started off by thinking, you know, I'll just touch on the highlights and we'll just kind of go over it and I'll explain, you know, what's happening and what, what what I'm seeing in the word. But what ended up happening was that I realized that I had to just keep going back and talking about the things that I had, you know, skipped over that, you know, at the time I thought, well, you know, yeah, that's that's important, but I can't cover everything. So like, let me skip over that. But then as I'd be talking about the next thing, I'd have to refer back to the thing I just skipped over. So I just thought, you know what? <laughs> It'll just be better if I just read chapter 15 so that you can hear the whole story. And then we'll go back and we'll just touch on some certain things. And before you turn this off and you think, oh no, you know, he's just going to read a whole chapter in the Bible. You know, should I go get my pillow or maybe I should turn this off if I'm listening in my car while I'm driving so I don't fall asleep. You know, trust me when I say this, that this chapter is just jam-packed, okay? If you like watching movies that are action-packed with fighting and, you know, you know, the whole good versus evil type stuff with an occasional gory like war movie scene, (laughs) then this chapter is for you, okay? And and if you don't like that stuff, it's not all blood and guts, but I'm just saying, like, a lot of times the Bible gets kind of looked at in this light that it's nothing really exciting. Like the whole Bible is made up of, you know, some genealogy where Adam begot Cain and Cain begot, you know, blah, 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 and that sort of thing. But really, the Bible's awesome. So if we can get over the fact that the Bible isn't written, you know, in the last year or so, that it was written a long time ago, if we just give it a chance, I promise you, it'll amaze you with all the stuff that you read, especially in the Old Testament, you know. And praise God, we're not under the Old Covenant anymore. And we'll discuss that in a little bit. Anyways, so here we go. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Talium, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and, and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Canaanites, 
Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Canaanites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah. And I don't know a lot of these, you know, towns and stuff. Just bear with me if I'm not pronouncing it right. Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, and he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people, and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, 
bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag <laughs> in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Man, <laughs> oh, maybe that doesn't get to you like it does me, but like you're going to see this, this chapter is so jam-packed. That, that's probably one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. So kind of to start off, we're going to look at 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 3. And, and I know we read a lot there, so I'm just going to kind of read over these couple verses just so we have an idea of, of what we're talking about. So verses 1 through 3 said, Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he had came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, just to kind of start, when I read this, and I've read this a bunch of times before, but verse 1 kind of had me confused because it's Samuel telling King Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people over Israel. Okay, so, you know, this isn't like a crazy, super important verse, but the confusing part to me was that it almost seemed like it was Samuel re-anointing him as king, but that didn't really make sense to me because God had already told Samuel in 1 Samuel 13, verses 13 through 14, like we discussed last time, that his kingdom would no longer continue, that his bloodline as king would have continued, but because of his actions, it wouldn't. So just to make sure that there's no confusion, you know, kind of like I was, Samuel is referring to how he was the one, you know, before, back in chapter whatever it was, that God used to anoint Samuel as king. So basically he's saying, you know, I'm credible. I was the one who first anointed you as king, so listen to these words. God then goes on to instruct King Saul, you know, through Samuel, but it's God speaking, to go and destroy the Amalekites. And he says to destroy the men, the women, the children, and all the animals. You know, kill everyone and everything. And that's very easy to understand. You know, there, there really shouldn't have been any room for confusion with that type of instruction. And it's cool that this is right at the beginning of this chapter with what we're reading because it's important we understand that, you know, God wasn't telling him to do this, you know, just because he had nothing better to do. I mean, God doesn't sleep or slumber, but it's almost like, you know, did he just wake up one day and decide, yeah, eh, you know, let's destroy this people. You know, you know, that's, that's not it. God doesn't just randomly do stuff like that, okay? This was all because many years ago, when the Israelite people were coming out of Egypt, Amalek attacked them. So this is them finally reaping what they sowed. Okay, this was judgment against that people. And praise God for us in this covenant of grace that we live in, you know, we don't get what we deserve. Okay, our judgment was placed on Jesus. But back then, the Amalekites had gone against the Israelites. 
And this is mentioned in Deuteronomy 25, verse 19. And it says, Therefore it shall be, when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under the heaven. You shall not forget. And, you know, God emphasizes that, don't forget this, okay? This is really important. There will be a day where there will be judgment on those people. It's not today, but when that time comes, don't forget and basically, you know, follow through with what I'm telling you to do. So not only were the Amalekites receiving judgment for their past mistakes, they also were being judged for what they were doing at that current time. Now, these people were not only involved in all sorts of different types of sexual sins, but they are also known for being involved in things like bestiality, okay? Now, I know it can be hard in the covenant that you and I are in to read that God not only wanted the leaders of the Amalekites killed, he also wanted the women, the children, and even the animals killed. So it's possible to read that and think, you know, what's that all about? You know, that seems really brutal and and really over the top. But the thing is, wiping the Amalekites out was actually an act of mercy from God, you know, for all of mankind at that time. And why was that? Well, you know, think about it like this. If someone had a cancer, and this is just an example, but if someone had cancer and the medical profession, you know, could no longer help them, you know, through treatments like chemo or, you know, whatever other treatments are out there. And the reason being because the cancer had affected that individual's body to the degree that there was no longer anything that they could do to treat it. What else might a doctor suggest? You know, they would suggest amputating the infected area. For example, if that was a leg, they'd suggest amputating the leg in order to save the life of the individual so it didn't spread to the rest of the body. And yes, it it is no fun to lose a leg. But a doctor's line of reasoning would be, you know, it's, it's better to lose one leg than to lose your life. And the same goes for mankind at that time. Okay, the Amalekites were so perverse that they needed to be wiped out so that that demonic possession they were under didn't continue to spread throughout mankind. And why was that? You know, why couldn't they just be set free like someone could today? Well, the reason is, is because Jesus hadn't come on the scene yet. So once those individuals allowed themselves to be demonically possessed, there was no longer any hope for them. Okay, it wasn't until Jesus was on the scene that that demonic depression could be overcome through the power of his name. And we see examples of that in the in the Gospels. You know, Jesus has the disciples go out and heal the sick and cast out demons and that sort of thing. And, and that wasn't just for them. That is also for us today. We have that authority through the power of Jesus' name to cast out demons and, and to heal the sick and, and all that sort of stuff. But back in the time of the Amalekites, Jesus hadn't come yet. So they were so far gone that it was actually God's mercy on mankind that he wiped them out, that he kept that corruption from spreading to more and more people. And, you know, the sexual sins and all that, you know, that's really just an addition to the fact that God had already declared to his people in Deuteronomy that the time would come one day when the Israelites would blot them out, that they would be repaid for the evil that they did. Next, we're going to look at verses 4 through 9. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in the Telem, 
200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah, and Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Canaanites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen, the fatlings, the lamb, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. So what we see here is that Saul goes and fights against them and they win the battle. However, again, just like we saw in part one, Saul doesn't listen to God. Verse eight tells us that yes, he killed the people, but it also mentions that he took their king Agag alive. So the problem with that is, again, that's not what God asked him to do. God was very clear. He told him to kill all the people and all the animals. He never mentioned anything about taking any of them prisoner. And in my mind, it's pretty easy to relate that to you and I in our own personal lives. Again, these stories are recorded so that you and I can learn from. How many times in our lives do we know that we know that God has instructed us to do something or not do something, but when it comes right down to it, we do most of what God has asked us to do, but we end up altering it, you know, just a little bit because the fact is whether we disobey God a little bit or a lot, it's still disobedience. It then goes on to say in verse nine, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. So here we see that everything despised and worthless, they had no problem destroying. But the best of the sheep, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that, it goes on to say that all that was good, they were unwilling to destroy. And that's what God had told them to do. And I'm getting ahead of myself here, but the reason they kept the best of the animals instead of following God's instructions was because they were going to take them and sacrifice them to God. You know, and on the surface, that sounds really good and dandy, but again, that's not what God told them to do. So ultimately, it's just camouflaged disobedience. This is just another example of how Saul was not a man after God's own heart, you know, like we'll see later on, like David was. And as a comparison, you can find an example of David's heart in 2 Samuel chapter 24. And this is when David is king. The background is that David you know, made a big mistake and the judgment for his mistake was actually being taken out on the people. And David knew that that wasn't right, that the people shouldn't have to be disciplined for his mistakes. So David then receives instruction to build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. And when King David approaches Arona, Arona was willing to allow David to do it even to the point where he said that he would be willing to give David everything, you know, at no cost. And I'm talking about the wood, the animals, you know, so on and so forth, everything that went into the process of giving a burnt offering to the Lord. 
Arana was willing to give David all that stuff so it didn't cost David anything. But listen to David's response. And this is in 2 Samuel 24, 24. Then the king said to Arona, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Now, contrast that with King Saul, who kept the best of the animals so that it wouldn't cost him anything, you know, other than disobeying God. (laughs) But again, What's a way that this can apply to us today, this part of this story? One thought that comes to mind is that a lot of us have been taught that once we become a Christian, everything from there on out should just be smooth sailing, as long as God's in it. That if it's God's will for your life, you'll never encounter any resistance. Now, don't get me wrong. Yes, God's desire for each and every one of our lives is to bless us. But that doesn't mean everything just automatically happens that way. You and I are in a spiritual battle. And yes, there are godly tests, okay? But godly tests are never evil in nature, okay? God doesn't put cancer on you to teach you a lesson, okay? God doesn't kill one of your kids or have some kid get raped or anybody get raped or planes crash. He doesn't do that (laughs) to try and teach us something or to do something for the greater good. You know, no, that is not God. It's the devil who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So again, there are godly tests, but they are never evil in nature. So as we're in this spiritual battle, the devil knows that he's lost us once we've become a born-again believer. And now he wants nothing more than to destroy our lives here on earth. So the truth is, you know, yes, there are times where things will go smoothly. But just because we run into resistance when we're trying to live a life sold out for Christ, that doesn't mean that God's the one holding us back. Like that's not the direction that God wants us to go. It just means that we're seeing some resistance. The devil maybe knows that we're a threat. So he's trying to get us frustrated or whatever the case may be so that we don't fulfill that calling that God has on our life. Because again, it's the devil whose goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. So even though it's God's will for us to live a life of abundance, the enemy is doing everything in his power to mess that up. But the good news is, we can be of good cheer because Christ has overcome the world. But the truth is, being a Christian will cost you something. It may cost you your job. You know, especially in today's day and age with how crazy things are getting in these last days. It may cost you your friends. (laughs) It may even cost you your family. You know, when you stand up and do things for God, there will be people out there who don't see it the same way that you do. And for some, you know, just think about the disciples. I think 11 out of the 12 disciples were martyred. And you see that even today. For some, it may even cost them their lives. So we see here in this example of David, it was important to him that his sacrifice to God cost him something. And that's because he truly was a man after God's own heart. So let's pick back up in the story and we'll read verses 10 through 12. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, 
I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, and he has gone around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. <laughs> Here we see Saul is at it again. Verse 12 tells us that he set up a monument for himself. Saul was so full of himself and into pride, just like we discussed in part one of this series, that instead of setting up something to honor God and give him glory for the battle that they just were able to win, he was all about honoring himself. And this is a great example to point out that anyone can run to God when everything is going wrong. However, the real test of whether or not we'll continue seeking after God, that comes when things are going our way. Now, when we're no longer up against the wall, as the saying goes, will we continue to value our relationship and seek after God, or do we begin to allow pride to creep its way back in? And this example shows us where Saul's heart was at. Instead of honoring God, he decided to honor himself. And you and I can do that in our daily life. You know, like how I said, when we know we're up against the wall and God helps us out, you know, whether it be at our job or with our income or, or, you know, whatever the case may be, and God meets those needs, it can be easy to take credit for those things that we know that God did. You know, people say something and it's okay for us to receive a compliment. And we don't have to be weird about it and be like, oh, no, oh, no, it wasn't me. It was all God. You know, you know, we don't have to be weird like that. But it's a hard issue. It's very easy to take credit for things and not give credit where credit is due when things are going good. Next, we're going to read verses 13 through 23. Then Samuel went to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. And I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and the oxen, best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. <laughs> That's pretty heavy and stubbornness as as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he, God, has also rejected you from being king. 
So man, there are some heavy things in there. So let's go back to verse 13 and see how it all started. So in verse 13, Samuel goes to Saul and starts off by saying, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now remember, God was very clear what he wanted to happen. Okay, He wanted all the Amalekites killed, none spared. But here we see Saul start with just a flat out lie to Samuel. And Samuel responds by basically saying, no, (laughs) no, you didn't. You know, if that were so, then how come I can hear the animals? And Saul responds by just going right back to his old ways, you know, blaming everybody else. Like we saw in part one. He says in verse 15 that they, you know, talking about the people, are the ones that spared the best of the animals in order to sacrifice them to the Lord. And then he goes right back to trying to give himself credit saying, the rest we have utterly destroyed. So with the things done right, Saul is all about including himself in that conversation. (laughs) But when correction comes, he tries to separate himself from others by throwing them under the bus. But the problem with that is, you know, let's just say for a moment that it was just the people that took the animals. Okay. The problem is that Saul was the one allowing them to take them in the first place. Okay, he was the king and what he said goes, you know, or else. Even if the people did just flat out disobey, there would have come a time where he noticed (laughs) and could have said, you know, whoops, I'm seeing a bunch of animals here that we didn't have before. Hey, guys, remember, we're supposed to kill them, too. And even if there was a communication problem, if a king were even half the king that they should be, I don't know how they could mess this up, okay? Especially when you're going into battle. I I would think that the game plan would be very clear. You know, you don't see a football team going in not knowing exactly what the game plan is. It's very clear what they're to do, and they go out and they execute what they've been practicing, okay? These people, they knew what they were supposed to do, and yet they didn't follow through. But even if somehow, you know, there was some confusion, and again... How do you get confused about, hey, kill everything, (laughs) you know? But anyways, let's say there was some confusion. That falls on him as a leader. And I'm believing that Holy Spirit is helping us all apply this in our own lives, where whether it's simply communicating better at our jobs or communicating better with our family members or our kids or whatever the case may be. And in the sake of our kids, if we saw them do something that we directly told them not to do, our response as parents shouldn't be, well, you know, they didn't do what I asked them to do, you know, oh, well, you know, no, we're supposed to train them up in the way that they should go. We need to bring correction and discipline if the situation calls for it. But that's not what Saul did here. He was the king. He was in charge. And whenever the time came that he noticed that things weren't being followed out the way that God wanted them to be, it was his job to bring correction and get it done the right way. And later we'll see why Saul didn't do this. But ultimately, he was responsible because he was their leader. So back to our story here. Samuel in verse 16 confronts Saul and starts off by basically telling him to shut up. (laughs) You know, my version says be quiet, but... I read that as, hey, shut up. (laughs) Samuel then goes on to tell Saul 
what God had revealed to him just the day before. And this is where Samuel says, when you were little in your own eyes, that's when God promoted you to king. And that phrase, little in your own eyes, it just simply means that he knew he was nothing. Okay, He knew he wasn't qualified. He wasn't made to be king because he deserved it. So when you were little in your own eyes, you knew that if any success was going to happen, it would have to be because of God. And I know I've already described this a million times, but this really is what this entire series is about. It's about a heart posture, the condition of the heart. Saul had let his position, his title, his successes, you know, go to his head. It no longer was about being a servant for the one and only true God and doing what was asked of him. It had become about him. He'd become a star in his own mind. So it's important we remember that when God begins to use us, we keep this story in our memory. That all of us, no matter who we are, are susceptible to getting caught up in pride. It doesn't matter if if you're someone who's been a believer for 20, 30, 40 years. We all have to monitor our hearts and be sure to keep the main thing the main thing, which is being obedient to Christ. Now in verse 18, Samuel reminds Saul what God said from the beginning. He told him that he was to utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they were consumed. And in verse 19, I recently picked up on something I hadn't seen in all the times that I've read this story. Verse 19 says, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Now, that word spoil... That's referring to their belongings. Okay, When you defeated your enemy in those days, their belongings became yours. And God is specifically pointing out that you saw, you swooped down, and the King James Version says, dis fly upon the spoil. <laughs> That's pretty good. But really what this is showing is it's showing the greed in Saul's heart that he wanted their stuff. And what I picked on that I hadn't seen before was that God didn't want any of them doing this. If we go all the way back to verse 5, when God gave the instructions, he said to utterly destroy all that they have. So God didn't want them taking the spoils. He wanted everything destroyed. Next, we'll see that Saul tries to lie a third time. (laughs) I don't know if he was thinking that if he could just fool Samuel... Then he would fool God too? You know, I, you know, I don't know, but <laughs> sure looks like he was trying to. In verse 20 through 21, it said that, And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And this is really comical when you think about it. Everything that was done according to God's instruction, Saul would say words like we, okay? He would include himself. But every time God's instruction weren't followed, he'd say things like they or the people, you know, basically trying to blame them, even though he was the king, and was in charge of everyone. He even starts out by saying, I did obey the voice of the Lord. But then in the same sentence, goes on to acknowledge 
that he kept Agag, their king, alive. Like, what in the world? This is just another example of how prideful and arrogant Saul was. Because obviously, leaving anyone alive was clearly not God's will. God had blatantly told them, hey, kill everyone. I want them all destroyed. And this was because of what they did to our people. Now, even if you were to keep someone alive, which again, I'm not saying he should have, because it was obvious what God's instructions were. So he shouldn't have kept anybody alive. But even if you did, (laughs) wouldn't you think it would have made somewhat of quote-unquote natural sense to spare someone like a kid or a baby or something? At least then he could have tried to have claimed that he was just acting out in mercy, okay? That it was just a kid, you know, something along those lines. But instead, he keeps the king alive, which to me is like a slap in the face to God. Not only did you keep some or one or any individual alive, but you kept the main person alive, their king. That, that just makes no logical sense to me. <laughs> this makes me think of like movies that are made to kind of poke fun at scary movies. You know what I'm saying? Like I specifically think of the Geico commercial where it's like a little spoof on like a Freddy Krueger type thing. And the kids are like, oh no, what do we do? And the other one says, Oh, look, there's a garage with a bunch of knives hanging and chainsaws hanging up. Let's go there, you know. So the kids go in there and and the Freddy Krueger guy, the murderer, is like, man, that was easy. You know, it just makes me think of that type of scenario. It is just so blatantly dumb what Saul did that, you know, I don't know. And again, I shouldn't throw stones at him too much because I do dumb stuff too. But just to keep in line with this story... It was just so blatantly against what God said to do that in my mind, it's almost like there must have been some sort of selfish reason for Saul doing this. You know, like Agag was going to lead him to a pile of money somewhere or a bunch of gold somewhere or, you know, something where Saul was going to get something out of this. You know, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say anything about that that I can see. But I just can't logically think how there would be any reason for keeping the king alive. But back to our story. Saul goes on to say that he did utterly destroy everyone else. So, in his mind, he did do what God wanted him to do. But the people, they're the ones that didn't destroy all the stuff, but instead took it. Saul even mentions how they were going to make sacrifices to God with them. And again, the Bible doesn't outright say this, And I may be reading into this too far, but this is how my brain thinks when I read the Bible. It's almost like by the way Saul says this, that yes, it's implied that Saul understood they weren't supposed to take any of the Malachite stuff. So first he says that the people did it. But then with how he adds on to it by saying, you know, hey, they took it to sacrifice to the Lord. Like because they said they were going to sacrifice it to the Lord, that Samuel was then going to say, oh, they took it to sacrifice to God? Oh, well, well, then that's okay. And, you know, I know that we know that it wasn't okay. But what I'm just trying to say is that if Samuel then changed his mind, I could just see Saul trying to change his story and take credit for it. Like, the people, they took the stuff to sacrifice to God. Oh, that's okay? 
well, yeah, they're my people and I let them so they could sacrifice it to God. You know, that, that sort of thing. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. In my mind, it does. I don't know if I explained that really well. But regardless of whether you agree with that hypothetical, the point is that he tried to say he did nothing wrong and he was all about trying to throw his people under the bus. But basically, he just flat out disobeyed God. And with practical application for us today, I can think of two ways that this could apply. You know, first, as a believer, you know, let alone a parent or a spouse or an employee, you know, when we mess up, we need to take a responsibility for our actions. In the area of parenting, for example, you know, me personally, when I mess up, when I do something stupid and it affects my kids, I apologize to them. I never want my kids to think that it's okay for their daddy to do something wrong and that I'm not held to the same standard that they are, okay? So when I mess up, I ask my kids to forgive me. It's not enough to simply point out that, yeah, daddy made a mistake, but I don't need to apologize just like I make you guys do. We as parents should apologize and ask them to forgive us. And whether you're apologizing to your kid or your spouse or whoever it may be, our job is to do so with a pure heart. You know, when we apologize with an ulterior motive, it's not a real apology. You know, like, you know, yeah, I was wrong and I'm sorry, but you did this. You know, our butts get in the way of our apologies. Okay, we need to be accountable for our actions. The second way I make personal application in my life from this example is that it's important to follow through with what God has asked me to do. So yes, Saul did go against the Amalekites, and yes, Saul did destroy almost everything. But the point is, he didn't fully follow through with what God had told him to do. He left things undone. And that's a temptation that we have. We need to be mindful of finishing what God has asked us to do. Not just get to the point where we can, you know, coast and then stop. You know, because when things are bad, we're more than willing to do what God is asking to do because, you know, things are bad. But then when things have lightened up, we let up and don't finish what God is asking of us. You know, and I'm not saying that we'll be perfect at this. But what I am saying is that we can mess up and still be a man or woman after God's own heart. You know, just because we mess up, that doesn't mean that we're not a man or woman after God's own heart. It just means that we messed up. And in the covenant that you and I live under, acknowledge it, thank Jesus that he died for that sin, and just keep on moving. God's not holding it against you. He's not even a little bit upset at you. All he sees is his spirit on the inside of you. And he, he looks at you and he views you as perfect, regardless of what you've done. So again, back to the story. Saul tries to deny he did anything wrong. He tries to take credit for the things done right. <laughs> And he wants to throw the people under the bus in order to deflect the blame off of himself. Saul is just at it again. Then we see Samuel respond by saying in verses 22 through 23 that obeying what God tells us to do is better than any natural thing someone could try to offer. And he's relating it to, you know, giving a sacrifice. Samuel then goes on to tell Saul that because he has rejected the word of the Lord, he, you know, talking about God, also has rejected him from being king. And this is the second time God told Saul this, you know, just like in chapter 13, verses 14. 
Now, after all this, in verse 24, Saul finally acknowledges that he's guilty, you know, that he sinned, that he messed up. He then says that the reason he did mess up, the reason he didn't listen, is that he feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, this is a pretty big statement. Because when we look at the previous verses and how Saul had been trying to take credit for some of the things, but also trying to blame the others, it's obvious he was aware of what he was doing. Because if you're trying to blame someone else, you're not unaware (laughs) that something wrong happened. So this verse is like the nail in the coffin for him with any attempt that he could to try and deny that he didn't know what he was doing. Because he would have had to have known what he was doing and that he was going against what God had told him to do. And I know that's kind of wordy, but hopefully you get the gist of what I'm saying. Because if his excuse was that he didn't listen because he feared the people, again, this just shows he knew he was not listening to God and he was going against his will. (laughs) You can't claim ignorance when you're acknowledging you didn't listen. So next we see in verse 27 that Samuel goes to walk away and Saul grabs the edge of his robe and it rips. And God again, through Samuel, tells Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom from you today and has given it to your neighbor of yours, who is better than you. So we see that Saul acknowledges that he valued the people's opinion more than God's. But then in verse 30, he again shows how self-centered he is. Verse 30 says, Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of the people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So this is an amazing verse. Saul was just told, again, might I add, that the kingdom would be taken away from him. And after all that, all he was concerned about was what he'd look like in front of all the people. You know, he didn't just fall on his face and, and, and ask for mercy from God. All he was concerned about was that the people knew. Saul is what we would call a man pleaser. Okay, another biblical phrase of describing this is having a fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25, in the first part of that verse says, the fear of man brings a snare. And I'm not trying to get too deep here, but that word snare is a word that means like a noose or a hook. Okay, just like you would hook an animal, hook a fish, something like that. Meaning that just like an animal is caught with a noose or a hook and is captive to the hunter, A person who cares more about what people think than what God does is held captive. Okay, they're a slave. And that's exactly what Saul was. He was enslaved to the opinion of the people, even as king, because he cared more about their opinion than God's. So to end, we see that Samuel turns back and goes with Saul. Now, like I mentioned at the beginning, for all of you that like bloody war movies or Gruesome video games, you know, (laughs) these next couple verses may surprise you. In verse 32, Samuel then tells them to bring Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites, he tells them to bring him to him. We then see that Agag, when he's approaching Samuel, tries to talk his way out of receiving the same type of judgment that all the people had already had. But that's not going to work with Samuel because he's fixed on God. Samuel cares more about obeying God than about some king attempting to persuade him because he's going to finish what God wanted done all along. And what we see is that Samuel doesn't just kill him, 
In verse 33, it says that Samuel hacked Agag in pieces. <laughs> so we're talking blood and guts everywhere, okay? And I'm not trying to get carried away with this. I'm not trying to gross you out. But like, can you imagine the frustration that Samuel had? And we're not going to read it. But at the end of this, it says that Samuel, he doesn't come to see Saul again until after he dies. And there's actually a, a verse, and I don't know if I've read it in this series so far or if it's later on. Actually, it's later on. It'll be in, in the part three of this series. But it talks about how Samuel was hurt that the kingdom had to be removed from Saul. And I'm saying this to say that Samuel just got done telling Saul the judgment that had come upon him, that he would be removed from king, that his bloodline would no longer have a king in it. And so... I can only imagine that there's anger, you know, like a righteous anger in Samuel. He's upset, and I'm not saying he's out of control or anything like that. But here's this king, King Agag, that should have been killed already. And we see that Samuel just doesn't give him a little stab to the heart. I mean, I can just see him taking out his frustration. You ever seen anybody chop wood? All right, the effort that goes into that. I can just see him just going crazy on this. And can you imagine the sight that was to the people? I, again, I'm not trying to get too carried away. But as a last part of that, my thought is that, you know, Samuel, he knew what the Amalekites did to his people. And just like it said, how you made mothers childless and all that sort of thing, because the Amalekites, they turned against the Israelites and killed them. It was like a righteous vengeance. I could just see Samuel doing this. So anyways, I'm going to leave that alone. But um, yeah. So all that to say, if anyone has ever told you that the Bible is boring, they obviously haven't read it, <laughs> you know, or they've just glossed over it and not really thought about it. And I'm not trying to make myself out to be like, I'm just this intellectual who catches everything in the Bible. Absolutely not. Okay. I could read chapter 15 millions more times and maybe on the millionth and one time <laughs> I'll get something that I probably should have got a long time ago. Okay, so again, I'm not trying to act like I've got it all figured out, but the Bible is just so cool. And the reason being is because it's living. Mankind will never be able to get everything out of the Bible because the, the Holy Spirit is the one who ministers to us from the Bible. Okay, it's, it's, it's awesome. But what I want you to take from this is, again, these are real life people. Even though they were... I don't know, 4,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, whatever it may be. These are real people who had their lives recorded. And these stories are here so that we can learn from their mistakes and we can learn from their successes. And as you go forward in the weeks and the months and the years in the future, the Holy Spirit can use these Old Testament stories to help us and bring to our remembrance of how faithful God was for them. And if he was faithful for them, he's going to be faithful for us. We live in a better covenant. So if he was faithful for them, he is going to go well and beyond what we can imagine. And if you've been listening to this today, and even through these Old Testament stories, you're seeing the love and the grace and the mercy that God has for you today. If you're someone who kind of got off track, or you're someone who's never given your life to Christ, I want to give you that opportunity today. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So let me ask you this. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? 
Do you believe that he was raised from the dead? If so, then let's simply speak it with our mouth. So repeat this after me. God, I thank you for your son, Jesus. I believe he is the Christ, that he was raised from the dead. I make you Lord of my life. Thank you for saving me. I receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you said that simple prayer and meant it in your heart, you are what the Bible refers to as born again. You are brand new. The old you has passed away and God's spirit is in you right now. And as we speak, there's a party in heaven and they're celebrating that you just came into the family of Christ. And what I'd encourage you to do next is to share with someone that you made this decision to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And keep listening along on this podcast. Keep reading your Bible. Keep running after Jesus, my friend, because this is just the beginning. And God's plan for you is so awesome. A year from now, you'll be amazed at what God has done in your life. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time on the Abundance Podcast.